ago that it had been the U.S. policy that of bombing Cambodia, first almost surely conniving and certainly encouraging and supporting the overthrow of Sihanouk by Lan Nol, which um, had been long hoped for and long planned in some way through the U.S. Uh, and then the um, massive U.S. bombing of Cambodia had been the essential, created the seedbed for the rise of the Khmer Rouge, that particular faction of resistance forces. After all, the U.S. bombing resulted in uh, refugee flows within Cambodia of uh, something like two million people out of a population between six and seven million. So a third of the people of, of Cambodia under our bombing shifted their, shifted their homes. The society, in a, in a very short space of time, uh, there were comparable refugee flows in terms of size and scale in Indochina, but over a much longer period of time. And that may have been an absolutely unprecedented disorganization of, a, of any society, and of a rural society like that, where the people were extremely attached to their, their um, homes and their grave sites. It was, in effect, the, uh, a shuffling, a reshuffling of society uh, as you would shuffle a pack of cards, practically, in an extremely anomic situation. And it was in those circumstances that the unusually esoteric doctrines, uh, hardly known even to the rank and file of the Khmer Rouge, uh, were able to, um, and, and the leadership of that, was able to uh, take power. It was a sideshow, uh, in effect, both for the North Vietnamese, for the Vietnamese, and for the U.S., uh, a situation in which the Chinese, as I understand it, were basically backing Khmer Rouge against the DRV forces. And uh, it wasn't at all uh, necessary or foretold that the liberation of Indochina and specifically of Cambodia from, from foreign domination should lead to the uh, domination of the Khmer Rouge. Of course, in particular, of course, uh, under Sihanouk, uh, Cambodia had achieved a position that was neutralist in more than name. He really had kept his country largely out of the conflagration. And to overthrow him was an evil act, which was intended, planned, worked for by the U.S. I say that to this day, smoking guns, in the sense of conclusive evidence that we conspired, to overthrow him while he was out of the country is still lacking, although there's a great deal of circumstantial evidence that convinces me that we were, in fact, that the U.S. was, in fact, behind that. But there's no question at all that we had hoped for it and encouraged, and encouraged Lon Noel, and he was led to believe from the beginning that he would have our support in doing this. Well, that was, a, of course, a disastrous development for Cambodia and started the, the train of events from then on, accompanied, as I say, by our bombing. So, in that sense, then, we bear great responsibility for the deliverance of that society to the, the brutal and, uh, you know, and fanatically ideological Khmer Rouge. Uh, we, we share responsibility. To, to give us all the responsibility would be wrong. That would be to imply that uh, Pol Pot him and his uh, lieutenants had no role, had no responsibility, or the Cambodians, or for that matter... Uh, People like Kosinuk, who from then on uh, were f uh, faced a series of dilemmas and devil's bargains and shifted from one side to the other and 
because of the uh, enmity and fear of the Vietnamese in particular among the Cambodians. So there's there's responsibility that's that's widely shared, but we bear a very heavy share of it. Uh, even though we didn't intend uh, for Pol Pot, of course, the takeover, I would say the next phase began when we became the effective allies of Pol Pot, and and, and absolutely one of history's greater, more more savage ironies, I would say, more macabre uh, jokes, which which. Uh, remains unknown to uh, almost all Americans. Pol Pot rightly remains a symbol of, uh, of cruelty in the service of ideology and, and power. And yet, uh, I would suppose very, very few Americans have any sense that in our detente and, and general alignment with the Chinese and our uh, uh, general uh, bitterness toward our defeat at the hands of the Vietnamese, that we effectively aligned ourselves with the forces supporting Pol Pot, uh, just as the Chinese did. So that, uh, and that's how we came to do it to a large extent. And that's been pretty steadily true right up to the end. There have been few, we've had a few twists and turns in our own policy, but uh, the, the burden of it has, has pretty much put us on the side of, uh, of Pol Pot, which is... Uh, uh, now, granted, it is not unusual for us to be on the side of genocide, as in Indonesia and in various other places. Still, Pol Pot is one of the more blatant you know, uh, symbols of this. And for the U.S. Uh, to be not only tolerant but supportive of, of Pol Pot goes beyond even what some of the very most cynical uh, observers of American policy might have, might have predicted. But it's the fact. It's the reality. So... Um, I did think that from the moment Pol Pot was in custody, that his chances of surviving into a courtroom were very low. Uh, there were just too many people, uh, too many different nations and factions who had intense interest in not seeing him called on to testify about their relations with him. And that would, uh, that would include the Chinese, but it would certainly include us. Uh, the U.S. would have no interest, whatever, in a, whatever we said. We said we were willing to take him into custody. Frankly, uh, I don't think Pol Pot would have been too well advised to be in U.S. Uh, hands, actually. I think his health would not have improved. Uh, but um, uh, he, we weren't the only ones who, uh, who felt that we didn't want that past uh, disinterred. Talk about... Uh, in retrospect now, uh, how history has dealt with the U.S. wars in, in Indochina. One often hears the terms um, well-intentioned effort, though uh, in retrospect a mistake, a noble purpose, uh, those kinds of things. Of course, there's been a major conscious effort by the establishment, as Noam Chomsky predicted, uh, as, as early as 73, uh, when one could begin to see an end in sight eventually, though the war had not yet ended, uh, that there would be a major effort to capture the history and the interpretation of the war. I think it is true that uh, people who say uh, of the stature of a Carter or a Reagan or uh, almost anybody that uh, the war was a noble cause, which uh, unfortunately went awry and where we didn't pursue it efficiently or wisely and that it eventually became too costly um, I'm talking now about interpretations that do 
that uh, do feel the war was right to end, that we, we should have ended it in the end, but still feel that it had been rightly started. And then, of course, there are others who say it was not only rightly started, but could have been effectively won. That's another uh, strong theme now, <clears throat> increasingly, but let's put that aside for the moment and take even the people who say, well, no, it was inevitable that uh, we had to get out, but that we had been right to get in. That probably is the dominant feeling if you were to take polls and certainly among the establishment. You know, the, the Rambo thesis, the, the U.S. was uh, well, fought... The, the Rambo is, is the second school I was talking about, which is uh, especially certain military and right-wing Republicans, right-wing in general, and people like Reagan who probably were just asleep during the whole war and have you know, <laughs> been given brief one-page summaries of what was going on from time to time. Um, uh, but uh, there are military, actually, who still say we could have won, uh, should have won, and so forth. I think they're terribly wrong. They're completely wrong. And uh, But um, that's, that's, again, understandably widely shared because it was hard to... It's hard to imagine that the U.S. could be defeated by such a ragtag uh, group of you know, fourth-rate fourth power, as Henry Kissinger called them. It's inevitable that one looks for some kind of conspiracy or weakening of will or something that kept us from winning. It's very hard for any uh, power that thinks of itself as a regional great power, even let alone a world great power, to imagine that its allies uh, can't be beaten. Uh, that was true of Russia in Afghanistan at first, certainly, and uh, Russia in Chechnya <laughs> in their own place. Uh, the Israelis uh, did not foresee what, what they were getting into in Lebanon. Uh, the Vietnamese themselves, having beaten us, uh, managed to go into uh, Cambodia with higher hopes of a success than they achieved. The Chinese, of course, went into Vietnam and got a bloody nose, essentially, as they were said. So it's just simply very hard to imagine that, uh, especially countries that are at a lower technological level, you can possibly muster the will and the motivation to, to fight you to a stalemate and to, tear, and to tire you out, which is the way these things generally do work. But uh, they just can't conceive how it's possible. Uh, they don't understand the empirical principle that a, uh, a, a nationalistic resistance force with sufficient motivation and good terrain and open borders and certain other advantages can stalemate uh, even the mightiest powers in the world, the most technologically advanced powers in the world. It's an implausible, uh, counterintuitive fact, but it is a fact that people have to learn over and over again. But let's go back to the notion, though, that was very wide. The other widespread notion is that we were right to go in. Basically, that simply ref part of that reflects the the consciousness of a lot of the officials uh, who told them rather sincerely what they themselves believed about the nature of the conflict. But those officials, in turn, were almost entirely ignorant of the history and very unself-aware of our of our relation over there. Uh, and how this delusion was maintained at the time and over the years is an interesting question. Maybe we'll have time for that. But let me go back to, to my under, let me turn to my understanding uh, that would be the basis for my answer to that. I think it's essential to realize there were not two wars, a French war and then later an American war. There was essentially one war for 30 years. 
uh, and it was an American war from the beginning in which at the beginning the French were effectively our instruments just as later the Saigon regime and the Vietnamese that we hired were our instruments for the fighting until we took over the bulk of the fighting with our own troops. However, in the very beginning, going back to 45 and 46, we were consciously supporting a French effort to retake by force to conquer, you know, by violence, a former colony which had declared its independence in March of 1945 and reaffirmed it in uh, August of 45. Uh, and it was an independence that was recognized at least for the northern part of the country by the French themselves in 45 and 46. Ho Chi Minh went to France as a head of, with, with the honors of a head of state. And the negotiations he was conducting, which came to nothing, uh, were really about the arrangements for unifying the country and for possible elections, at least from Ho's point of view, uh, for uh, making arrangements that would settle uh, the governance of the southern part of the country or the central part of the country. But he was uh, being recognized as head of an independent state, at least in the north. That wasn't the French intention, however, in their negotiations. And so when they started to fight their way back from Haiphong to Hanoi in 19, November 1946, it was a military effort to... Uh, Retake to re to acquire a colony which had been theirs before and which now felt itself to be independent and wanted to be independent and unified. That was an effort without any legitimacy whatever in the second half of the 20th century after the Second World War from the eyes, from the point of view really of any country in the world and above all one would have said from the United States with the Atlantic Charter and with our whole anti-imperial uh, declaratory position and our, our, our ideology of self-determination and Wilson's 14 points and uh, everything else in our history. It reflected a conscious shift by Roosevelt as early as late 44 and early 45 before he died that against his own better instincts and desires which, which uh, he expressed to his son Elliot and others that the French had no right to be in Indochina, that they had abused their power there and that they had misused their colonial powers for a hundred years and that the country should be independent perhaps first under some sort of UN trusteeship. He had changed that policy before he died for geopolitical reasons uh, in order to uh, be uh, preserve an alliance with the French after the war and also with the British. Uh, he had decided not to take an active policy of opposing their continued rule, or in the French case, return to rule over their colonies, the British in India, Malaysia and elsewhere, and the, uh, the French in Indochina. The French could never have returned their troops to Indochina without our logistic support and our financial support. We provided ships for them, we provided money for that operation, not so much because we really wanted the French to run Indochina, but because we wanted to support the French who wanted to do that. Uh, and later, of course, we had other geopolitical reasons. We wanted the French uh, to uh, tolerate the rearming of Germany, basically, and, and uh, the division of Germany and the rearming of Germany, which wasn't uh, easy to achieve politically, actually. And in connection with that, uh, we supported their colonial uh, ambitions, which were supported, after all, even by the Communist Party of France, uh, which wanted to prove its nationalism in French terms. So what we had was French nationalism versus Vietnamese nationalism, 
about the role of Indochina, which uh, is so called, after all, by the French, uh, because they, French patriots, think thought of themselves as owning uh, Indochina, the way, after all, Americans think of owning Panama, <laughs> practically speaking, and the Chinese think of owning Tibet. Uh, these are sincere beliefs on the part of many of these patriots, but they aren't endorsed by practically anybody else in the world who looks at the situation. So, in short, our support of the French in that case, which came to be more than support, it came to be basically a demand, virtually, that the French take this on, maintain that effort. By 1949, and, and certainly by 50, the French wanted out but by that time, with uh, the Chinese in power in Beijing, uh, the Democrats did not want to be accused of losing, quote, uh, of seeing communist control in some new part of the world where we had previously been in control through our allies, the French. And uh, they didn't want that charge. And the French were ready to lift that particular burden from their budget and their, and their troops. But we didn't want them to, so we ended up paying, as you know, I'm sure, more than 80% of the costs of the war, and essentially they were fighting for us by that time. So we start out then supporting a French effort, a totally illegitimate, uh, illegal uh, a fight against self-determination. Uh, within a few years, it's been converted to our fight against self-determination using the French as instruments as long as they would stay, which wasn't beyond Tian Ben Phu. So it was our war, in short, and a, a totally wrongful war. No, no possible way. To, but that's uh, in terms of the question of our right to win. In short, we had no right to win. And for very related reasons, we had no prospects of winning. After 54, uh, when we took over, we pushed the French out, essentially, and took over the, quote, responsibility, uh, we had no more prospect of defeating the communists by that time than the French had had, which was zero. And we had no more right either. And as I say, the two are related because the, the fight against self-determination was one that did not give us loyalty from those of a sufficient nature, motivation to fight for us, of those Vietnamese who were willing to wear our uniforms and, and our boots and take our pay. Uh, they were willing to do that and they were willing to do various things for it, but they were not willing to fight very effectively. Well, Eisenhower comes in in 53, and his Secretary of State, uh, John Foster Dulles, reportedly offers the French the use of uh, nuclear weapons. Do you have any information on that? Yes, I'd heard uh, that story from quite early on, and it is in the Pentagon Papers. Um, Bideau was uh, in a movie, uh, you may recall that I was interviewed for, Hearts and Minds. They actually interviewed Bideau, and he confirmed or repeated a story that first appeared, I think, in a book by Roscoe Drummond uh, called Duel at the Brink about John Foster Dulles's diplomacy, which I think was the first time that it revealed uh, Roscoe Drummond and Gaston Koblenz wrote this book, uh, which I'd read, which uh, revealed that Bideau had told people that he had been offered several nuclear weapons, in fact three, I think the figure was used, by Dulles, definitely offered them. The idea being that um, two would be for um, the vicinity of Dian Ben Phu and one would be against China inside the Chinese border. 
the idea of it, to send a strong message to China, which was supporting the Viet Minh and its, uh, its uh, encirclement of Dien Bien Phu. In the uh, documentary, actually, Hearts and Minds, uh, Peter Davis asked Bido, or some interviewer asked Bido, about that incident, and he said, yes, Dulles had offered these weapons, and he said he held up three fingers, he says, I recall, he said, trois, trois weapons, and uh, confirmed that the French attitude had been, as, as Drummond had written, that the weapons near Dien Bien Phu would be too close to their own troops. We were ready to make that experiment, uh, but the French weren't. And uh, it was French troops in that case, not U.S. Um, and the, uh, wep- the idea of a weapon against China raised incalculable consequences. It's a little too dangerous. And uh, France itself, after all, was subject to some degree of deterrence there. Um, China did not have nuclear weapons at that time, but uh, was allied with Russia, which did. So, and uh, Dulles, I'm sure, was quite sure that Russia wouldn't respond against France with, uh, because we'd use the nuclear weapon against its ally, China, and probably he was right. Almost surely he was right. But France didn't want to make that particular experiment. And uh, so they, di- they turned down the, the weapons. Well, let me ask you, is it conceivable that Dulles uh, made this offer without Eisenhower's knowledge and approval? I would say not, no. Uh, that was uh, surely Eisenhower. The notion, by the way, I f- I, that Dulles acted independently is a very shaky one on the whole. It's mostly wrong. Uh, I found that out when I was doing a study of nuclear crises, which, by the way, didn't, which I did in 1964 with very high access to documents. Uh, I didn't, as it happens, uh, include 1954 Indochina. I didn't even think to uh, look at that. It would have been interesting. I started, I looked at the Cuban Missile Crisis, but in particular I looked at Suez. I had a particular interest in that because I had extended in the Marine Corps in 56 uh, and because of the Suez Crisis. The Alsop brothers in the spring of 54, when I, uh, six, of um, 56, 56, when I was due to get out of the Marine Corps and go to Harvard as a junior fellow, wrote a series of columns that there was going to be war in the Middle East because of Nasser's nationalization of the Suez Canal. And they were right, of course, there was war. Well, I didn't want that to happen while I was back at Harvard, and my battalion, which was due to be in the Middle East uh, with the Sixth Fleet, was uh, somehow at war. I'd been a company commander in the battalion, and I had... Uh, help been the assistant training officer for the battalion. So I turned down my, my junior fellowship, actually, and uh, re-extended in the Marines for a year and went over. So in the crisis, the Suez War did take place while we were over there, and we actually evacuated all the Americans from Suez. And uh, I actually watched uh, British-French bombing raids of Cairo on the ship's radar, uh, when we were in the harbor of Alexandria, and there's very other stories I could tell about that. In fact, I could say I was in the harbor when the British and French were bombing Alexandria Harbor. Uh, flak fell on our ship, and so forth. So I had a particular interest in that war. And among other things, by the way, uh, I saw at the time local in the Mediterranean a lot of pictures, more than I think appeared in the U.S., of the destruction of Port Said 
by British and French bombers, which was very thorough, uh, enormous bombing. And remembering feeling very ashamed of our wartime allies for doing this and thinking to myself, I'm glad I'm not a British or French person who has to look at pictures like this. That was in 1956. And I was actually proud of uh, what I understood to be Eisenhower's position uh, of opposing aggression, even by our allies. Uh, that's what I was in the Marines to do, was to oppose aggression, I thought, you know. And here we were doing it, even when it was against our NATO allies, and they were indeed very angry at us and so forth. There's, it's an interesting story there, actually. Mm -hmm. that was, and that was the feeling that I had, that this was, this was very good. Uh, in fact, I was, uh, I was uh, helping, I was a training officer for the battalion on this uh, flotilla of ships, and I conducted a number of lectures. Uh, having, I studied the history of the area on the ship's Encyclopedia Britannica, and then I found some other books, like Arthur Kessler's, uh, Arthur Kessler had a book about the Middle East, and some other things, and I concluded Nasser had every right to nationalize this canal. It's a very good thing, and the British and French had no right to do what we were predicting they, they would do, which was attack. So I was saying, uh, presumably, we'll be fighting them, because <laughs> they're aggressive. This is aggression. And uh, my fellow officers, who were largely Catholic and uh, understood me to be Jewish, which I am by background, although I was raised as a Christian scientist, were kind of bemused by the fact that I seemed to be so uh, willing to contemplate fighting Israel, uh, <laughs> which I was. I was a Marine. We'd fight whoever we were ordered to. If we fought the Egyptians, we would presume we'd do quite well. So I made a landing plan for Alexandria in case we had to make an opposed landing to get our uh, civilians out, if they wouldn't let them out. You're listening to Daniel Ellsberg on the origins of the Vietnam War. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can get CDs of this program and our special book offer, Washington Bullets, the CIA Coups and Assassinations by Vijay Prashad by calling us at one 800 triple four one nine seven seven again that's one eight hundred triple four one nine seven seven or go online our website alternativeradio.org that's alternativeradio.org we're offering printed transcripts pdfs or mp3s of this program at no charge just give us a call at one eight hundred triple four one nine seven seven and my uh, counterpart officer, uh, other assistant operations officer, made a landing plan for Tel Aviv. And we figured that if we had to use his plan, <laughs> you know, as I say, we'd be wiped out, but if we used my plan, we'd probably do very well. Now, coming then, when I was doing eight years later, I was doing this study. And I actually uh, got access in the study I was doing for the Rand Corporation, but I had very high-level access, and I was allowed to spend uh, weeks and weeks in a huge vault, more or less the size of this room, like a library vault with shelves. It was the eyes-only, uh, not only top secret, but eyes-only uh, vault for documents, very sensitive documents, and it included the correspondence between... Uh, Kennedy and Khrushchev in the missile crisis and much earlier, all the earlier correspondence had gone on between Eisenhower and Boganan and Khrushchev and so forth, just shelves of this stuff on the book. So I was comparing histories of Suez with what I was reading in these very secret documents, which included transcripts of telephone conversations 
between Eisenhower and Dulles, for example. And this included even uh, conversations that, a very critical one in particular, that Dulles had with Eisenhower while he was at the Burning Tree Golf Course. And he had a radio with him, and, I, and Dulles was calling him. The upshot of all this, what I started out to say was, that I realized that Dulles throughout that crisis was on a very, very short leash. Uh, he took orders from Eisenhower on, in some cases, at the height of the crisis, on almost an hourly basis. Eisenhower was totally running this affair. And whereas the uh, such a book as Herman Feiner's uh, book on Dulles, which had access to a lot of classified information, and Feiner was a former official, but only partial, and he hadn't had this, and it had given him a totally false impression. He had the impression, as a semi-official historian here now, that Dulles had been on his own. He was quite critical of Dulles. That Dulles had decided to nationalize the canal on his own. I'm sorry, to uh, refuse uh, funding for the canal. Uh, which led to Nasser's nationalization of the canal. And he had Na uh, Dulles doing this on a, uh, a, what he regarded as a typically impulsive, emotional, ideological uh, reaction to uh, the Egyptians' arrogance, you know, when they threatened that they might turn to the Russians for funding. Well, in fact, as the files showed, we've been discussing that contingency in detail, what to do about it and the likelihood of it and so forth, for days and days before that and for periods before that. And Eisenhower was giving the detailed instructions to Dulles as to how to proceed. Uh, Dulles had no, no initiative on that one at all. And then later, uh, that was true of, of, of every step of the crisis. So that gave me a, quite a different impression of presidential uh, leadership here because Eisenhower benefited to some extent and also suffered to some extent from the impression that he cultivated that this policy was Dulles's, and he was off playing golf. Yeah, but he was a working golf player, uh, just as they often tell us, you know, and so forth. He let uh, Dulles take the blame for a policy that might be a problem, and he was even willing to let Dulles have the credit when, it, uh, if it turned out well, he detached himself. I've always suspected that even someone who gives every evidence of having been remo removed from reality, like Reagan, you simply cannot tell that from outside. Uh, it, it surely was true to some extent, but uh, it could well be true that, that Reagan was much more in charge. Well, we did learn, and with Gate, of course, that Reagan uh, may have forgotten later what he'd been told, but at the time he was closely in charge of this crazy policy, you know, and wild in policy of uh, selling arms to Iran for terrorists and backing the Contras, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, in short, I, I developed then a notion that was confirmed in the Pentagon Papers for Vietnam, that to a large extent our policy is run as a covert operation is run in such a way as to provide, quote, plausible deniability for the president, to enable him to blame uh, underlings, whether it's the Secretary of State or CIA or someone else, for reckless or costly or immoral or illegal policies and, and self-claim some detachment from it. What the Pentagon Papers showed me later, for instance, was that uh, time after time, and, and very specifically under Kennedy and then under Johnson, the impression that the president was simply following military advice in what he was doing was flatly untrue. Uh, time after time, I found the president going against typically, in fact, against the advice of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in various ways. And the policy that was emerging was presidential policy. And yet, 
uh, to this day, managing to keep the impression uh, biographies uh, of Johnson that come out still manage to ignore the evidence of the Pentagon Papers uh, uh, and say he was following the advice of his uh, Kennedy subordinates, let's say, or his uh, people who carried on, or the Joint Chiefs of Staff and so forth, and ignoring the, the many, the great deal of internal evidence that the advice he'd given and the estimates he'd been given were entirely different. Uh, before moving on uh, from the 56 Suez War, I'd just like to, some clarification here. Under very uh, stern U.S. objection, Britain, France, and Israel withdrew from the uh, occupied zones of Egypt. What do the documents reveal in terms of planning aggressive action if there were no withdrawal? Was there any such contingency plans? By the U.S.? Uh, good question, and I would say no, uh, that there wasn't. Now, what there was was something recurrently, you know, um, that kept coming back in the 67 war to some extent, and then again in 73, uh, very, very intensely in 73. And that was a proposal by the Russians that they join with the U.S. in restraining these U.S. allies, in, the, in that case the British, French, and Israelis, in other cases the Israelis, but that the, that the Russians, who were more aligned with the Egyptians, would somehow act with the U.S. to separate the warring parties. And on each occasion, of course, the president was willing, or the president of the time, was uh, willing to take the most extreme threats now against the Russians to prevent their entering that area in, the, in any guise whatever, including the guise of a neutral mediator or of a uh, peacekeeping force of any kind. So when it, uh, of course, uh, I think you were asking, did, might we have pushed the British and French back by force? And I would say no, uh, I, I, definitely not. I certainly never came across any such evidence. But um, the, uh, we were very, very strong, of course, in pushing back any suggestion by the Russians that they had a legitimate role in that, in that area. And if the Russians had taken unilateral action, which in several cases they threatened to do, in 73 they apparently proposed, if you won't join with us, we will move unilaterally as a peacekeeping force to separate these forces, you know, to enforce a ceasefire. In that case, we said, we would take very strong military action. And, of course, in 73, we actually threatened the use of nuclear weapons very consciously. That was a very complicated case. But 73 was a very strongly uh, nuclear crisis. And in three ways, you could say, uh, from the Russian point of view, from the Israeli point of view, and from the U.S., uh, all three invoked the possibility, uh, possible use of nuclear weapons in that case. But the recurrent theme was <coughs> to... Uh, deny to the Russians uh, the notion that they had any role to play as a global superpower comparable to ours. Now, from one point of view, you could say, why is it more obvious that, that we have a right to you know, intervene and play a role in that area than they do? It's, more, it's a hell of a lot closer to them than it is to us. Well, of course, it's not their oil at stake <laughs> in the sense that they have, don't depend on the oil of the Middle East to the degree that we do. So we think of it as our oil and therefore our, oil, our area to a considerable extent. And, of course, we have our ally, uh, the Israelis. But then the, the, uh, the Egyptians, uh, the Russians by that time, were acquiring an ally in, in Egypt. So um, uh, I come back to the, uh, a very key point is this. 
if you ask, uh, let me raise a very broad question. What has the role of nuclear weapons been in uh, world politics uh, over the more than 50 years now of the nuclear era? Certain answers that are usually given, such as they prevented a Russian attack into Western Europe, can easily be seen through as as uh, as not very substantive because there wasn't much ever, ever any much indication that the Russians had any intention or desire to go into Western Europe. Uh, but if you look close, but then there's a temptation almost to say that it didn't have any, it didn't make any difference, that the lines were drawn in such a way that it would have been the same had there not been nuclear weapons. I think that's misleading. And uh, one, I, I could name several areas where the U.S. policy had a firmness, let's say, and an ambitious, uh, was ambitious to a point that would not have been likely without U.S., without nuclear weapons, and specifically without the threat of initiating the use of nuclear weapons against Russian forces, even though Russia had the capability to retaliate after 1949. Uh, we, our policy was premised in several respects, important respects, on, on a, an ability to make a sufficiently credible threat of initiating nuclear war against Russian forces. Now, one of those uses, which is not in people's minds very much, was very simply to keep Russia out of the Middle East, and not only out of Saudi Arabia, which we regard ourselves as owning and controlling, but out of Iran, right on their very borders. As a matter of fact, you, you may or may not be aware, Truman, the first claim of an effective first-use threat of nuclear weapons. What would come to your mind, if I asked you that? I think it's Azerbaijan in Iran. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> but you know not everyone would come up with that answer, right? Uh, that's right. Truman claimed in, uh, after the event that it was only his threat of nuclear weapons that had, kept, had pushed the Russians out of Azerbaijan, where they were occupying at the end of, um, well, in northern Iran. Uh, northern Iran, at the end of World War II, and that they had wanted to extend their stay there, but he had told them that he would use nuclear weapons if they did. Now, historians in general dismiss that. They regard it not only as a bluff, but they doubt that the threats were ever made. Uh, there is no documentary evidence at, at, to this day, at whatever, that any such threats were made of nuclear weapons. There were clear indications that we might use force at various points, but no documentary evidence of indicating nuclear weapons. However, northern Iran is a place where we have essentially no ability to confront Russians. We can barely, you could imagine, confronting Iranians uh, logistically or any other way without using nuclear weapons. And I do know, this comes to some other crises, that in war games at the Rand Corporation and in the Pentagon, in the late 50s and early 60s, looking at Iran, it was always taken for granted that Russians could be kept out of Iran only by first use of nuclear weapons. That, of course, gives retrospective uh, credibility to Truman's claim. There's a second point. I, I, I should say, by the way, uh, this is dismissed almost just uniformly by historians, despite the fact that Truman made it in, uh, on the record on several occasions later. Uh, they just say, oh, he's making that up. You know, it's just, just uh, they find it very convenient to just ignore it if they, if they uh, want to. 
Uh, they have two reasons for wanting to. They they don't have the documents on the one hand, and they go very much on that. But more than that, they they typically have not taken seriously uh, the allegations of threats of nuclear weapons. Now, uh, I do take the Truman threats with some seriousness. He may have misremembered. They may be wrong. Uh, if if made, they may have been totally buffs. All that is possible. But I don't dismiss them by any means because I have you have to see those in the light of uh, uh, 40 years later of recurrent threats of just this sort and in that area as well. And threats which were just as undocumented for many years. In, the, in many of the later cases, we now do have documentary evidence, but that wasn't available for a long time. This is something that's kept very, very secret. So the lack of documents doesn't mean that there, there was no uh, event of that sort. Now, uh, the point is that, as Paul Nitzsch has said to in a debate that he was a three-way debate with Ken and Truman and, and, and uh, Nitzsch in about 1950, he said, there were areas in the world that we just could not hang on to without a credible threat of initiating nuclear war. Kennan was for a no-first-use policy. And he specifically named Iran as one of those places. Now, that's Iran, but that's true of the Middle East as a whole. Of course, the further south you get, the more effectively, with the help of the Sixth Fleet, we could confront Russian forces. They get farther from their borders and so forth. But we would always have, it would never be easy. It's always a lot closer to them than it is to us. Uh, they could also take action against the Sixth Fleet if they were willing to, you know, risk real uh, big escalation. But they could do it. So, uh, in short, I'm saying our goal in the Middle East was and is to this day quite ambitious in this respect, which is to keep the Russians from playing any active role whatever in that area, which is right on their border, and uh, to deny the legitimacy of it, and above all, to just make it impractical because it was too risky for them. And that has always relied on the first use threat of nuclear weapons. We couldn't have, I don't believe we could have kept them out of the Arab-Israeli question, of the Egyptian question, of any of these questions, to the extent we actually have without that first-use threat. You could ask, so what? You know, why bother? How important is it? That's a little harder for me to answer. But the fact is that the nuclear threat did enable us to carry out this quite aggressive and ambitious strategy. You have no business there, whatever, in other words. About four or five years ago, Oliver Stone came out with a film called JFK. Um, a series of books came out about the same time by Fletcher Prouty, John Newman, Peter Dale Scott, and, and many others, in fact. Uh, the central thesis being that Kennedy was preparing the groundwork for U.S. military withdrawal from Vietnam, and that was urgently linked to his assassination. Now, what's the documentary record on the former allegation? Let me take the latter allegation first. I, I, I'm not convinced even slightly, uh, I don't take it very seriously, that his assassination was linked to any such, to his, to his Indochina policy. I'll give a, uh, by the way, what I think is a rather conclusive evidence of that or indication of that in my mind that I've never seen mentioned by anybody else. Um, the supposition there is that the people who wanted to stay in Vietnam to and, and to try to win in Vietnam 
found the idea of getting out so threatening that they were prepared to get rid of him uh, for that. Those are the very same people who were involved in the debate, which was an intense debate at the highest levels of the government, about a coup against Yem. And, uh, so who are we talking about here, the Bundy brothers, no, McNamara? No, we're not talking about the Bundy brothers. Uh, we're talking about um, some of the military in this case. Um, the people who are accused, I think, by the way, they're, they're wrongly accused or understood to be determined to keep us in Vietnam, either of the Bundy brothers or, uh, or McNamara. And I say that not as, as their advocates or fans, but as a, my best historical understanding of it. But um, uh, certain elements of CIA, certainly, certainly certain people in uh, generals, in um, the Joint Chiefs as a whole, were certainly strongly on record that they felt we should try to win in Vietnam. And they were against the coup against Yem. Um, let's uh, actually, to answer your question right away, we can just look up at the lineup on Xiem. The people who were against the coup in Xiem were Lyndon Johnson, who wasn't you know, terribly active on Vietnam policy, but was a player. He had been sent as a representative of Kennedy in 61. Yeah, and he called Yem the Winston Churchill of Asia. Came back with that and took a very strong position that we should not only back Yem to the hilt, but should uh, send combat troops there uh, to Vietnam. He was in favor of that. Lyndon Johnson was in favor of that in 61. Had the assassination of Kennedy taken place in 61, I have no doubt that Johnson would have sent troops in 61 or 62, by the way. You know, that was foregone virtually, that Lyndon Johnson would send troops to Vietnam. Now, uh, but at the time of the coup, McNamara was opposed to it. John McCone, the head of CIA, was opposed. The Joint Chiefs across the board were opposed to the coup. If you wanted to stay in Vietnam, let alone win in Vietnam, uh, you certainly would have backed Xiem at that point. The notion that we would do better the, uh, at pursuing the war without Siem was held by a couple people at the periphery of decision making including Henry Cabot Lodge but he, an ambassador but he's an example of someone who had just arrived in Vietnam with no previous experience of the situation at all that was an ignorant and foolish position he actually did have some optimism that we'd do better without Viet, without Siem but that was held by almost no one who knew anything about about Vietnam. Whether you liked Siem or didn't like Siem, it was clear our imperial role there was better served by Siem than it would be by any, uh, any, anybody else. And therefore, uh, if, you were, if you wanted to stay in Vietnam, then the important thing to do was to head off, was not to kill Kennedy. It was to head off the coup against Siem. And that didn't require killing Kennedy. Uh, and on the contrary, for, so you'd want the assassination, let's say, before November rather than after November, uh, or a, a bef uh, before November 1st rather than after November 20th. But you didn't have to, you didn't have to kill Kennedy to, to, to head off that coup. Uh, all you had to do, and it's, in a way it's astounding that it didn't happen, considering the passions that were involved here, was to leak it. All you had to do, basically, was to tell the American public that an, a Catholic president was in the process of contemplating the overthrow of a Catholic head of state with the probable killing of the Catholic head of state, his brother, his family, and his archbishop brother, another, archbi another brother who was an archbishop, Catholic archbishop, 
who had had up to that point the backing of Cardinal Spellman, you know, and, and others, uh, that coup would not have taken place. That was a very easy coup to stop. Given that there were people who did feel passionately, it is quite interesting that, that in a way, that secrecy held at that level of the secret government, which is headed by the president, the invisible government, which does exist, but it has to be understood as it doesn't, uh, whatever cabals and conspiracies are, are, do exist below the president, basically it's headed by the president. The president runs a secret government, a secret foreign, so that he can run a secret foreign policy in pursuit, of course, of corporate interests and, and partisan interests and various interests. Uh, but uh, if they were majoritarian, well, or if they were consensual interests in the society, he wouldn't have to be secret about it. But uh, the, the covert operations make it possible for him to serve various special interests uh, without being accountable for that. And the secrecy is so tight, it, it is so great. The ties of loyalty, the, 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 the oath of omerta, the silence, is so comparable to that of the early mafia. I understand it's eroded a great deal in the mafia for some reason now. Would that that were true in the U.S. executive branch. Uh, that's wonderful. We could we should find out what has happened to the mafia, you know, to make some of them start opening up. You know, uh, there's a lot of Ellsbergs in the mafia, if I may say, put it that way. And uh, would that there was true in in the executive branch. I, I wish there were more. But um, but tell me, why do you think so? It so didn't leak. So the coup took place. So in short, uh, I would say uh, any of those people who are alleged to have wanted, you know, to, uh, to hand off his Vietnam policy, could have done it much... Uh, the, the urgent, immediate thing was to avert the coup of Xiang, and they didn't do even that. And after that, you were in much worse condition to do anything winning in Vietnam, although we continued to fight the war. Now, the next thing was that they certainly would not have expected, and they would not have been right to expect, Kennedy to do anything toward getting out of Vietnam before the election of 64. So they had a year there was no big rush about that. And with or without Xiem, then, uh, you didn't have to do it by killing Xiem, uh, killing Kennedy in 63. Uh, and third, as I think we've seen in Watergate and elsewhere, the CIA and the Joint Chiefs have a lot of ability to unelect a president if they want to get rid of a president. And if they didn't like the way Kennedy was going, they had a great deal of power to elect, affect the election of 1964. Um, uh, I don't well, think well, well, the assassination was not yeah. the way they, they would have had to go. Well, given all those things then, why does this uh, persist? Why does this uh, have a continual resonance in, in portions of the American public? Well, there are various reasons why there's interest in it, of course. And some of them... But, you know, may I say, you're sort of off the record. I think here we're getting into a long... This okay. is a big, long subject. It's another big, whole subject. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's not a small... This is not a small one. You were just listening to Daniel Ellsberg on the origins of the Vietnam War. I talked with him in Boulder, Colorado on April 25th, 1998. Daniel Ellsberg precipitated a national political crisis in 1971 when he released the Pentagon Papers, a top-secret study of U.S. government decision-making about Vietnam. 
This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and in our 35th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature such progressive voices as Winona LaDuke, Noam Chomsky, Arundhati Roy, Ralph Nader, and Michael Eric Dyson. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs of today's program with Daniel Ellsberg and our special book offer, Washington Bullets, the CIA Coups and Assassinations by Vijay Prashad, just give us a call at 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. We're offering printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program at no charge. Just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. just go to the website alternativeradio.org alternativeradio.org we too are independent and are supported solely by listeners who make donations uh, purchase transcripts mp3s or cds of our programs so we're very much uh, dependent on listeners out there You're listening to Next Level Radio only on CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary or online around the world at CJSW.com.
by Natalia Chai. That is a brand new track by the Neo Soul pianist artist there that has recently relocated to Calgary. And hello, my friends. It is 12.02 in the booth, 12.03 now, and you are tuned in to Local Singles on CJSW 90.9 FM. My name is Sammy Parker, and I'm here to take you through the next hour of your favorite Local Singles. Before we start, I do want to say that we are broadcasting out of Calgary, Alberta at the University of Calgary campus radio station, which is located on Treaty 7 land. I would like to take this opportunity to acknowledge the traditional territories of the people of the Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta. The city of Calgary is also home to the Métis Nation of Alberta, region number three. It is the last week of July, my friends, and we are, uh, yeah, I guess we're feeling it. It's a, it's a little strange. Uh, the summer seems to be going by like that and been very smoky lately, but I hope that everyone out there has been able to find some uh, relief from the smoke. There has been a few days where it hasn't been too, too bad, so fingers crossed for sure. This week, we have an interesting episode for you, another fun one, and we are going to be trying to do this at the end of every month or around that time where we play a bunch of songs that have either been newly released within the past month or that they have been submitted to me uh, via my Instagram and we're going to showcase those artists there. So I have a whole bunch of brand new music for you. I don't think there might be one song on here that's like slightly older that may have been released a little bit earlier in the year, but this is all brand new stuff. So I'm very excited to get uh, started with it and show you all. We have a few different genres. We're going to go into some pop. Uh, we've got like a bit of a folk kind of country set. Uh, some rock, some harder rock, and then end off the day with uh, some experimental, kind of following a very similar. 